Welcome to Women Leading the Way Radio Show, where each time you'll hear from successful women CEOs, executives, and professionals, where we'll discover how they do what they do to be successful in business. We'll be interviewing women who have overcome big challenges, women who have incredible stories of lessons learned in dealing with adversity. We'll even interview women who have started and grown successful organizations and women who are C-level executives with unique talents and positions. Our goal is to bring successful businesswomen together to share how they're leading the way in business today. Good morning and welcome to Women Lead Radio, brought to you by Connected Women of Influence. I'm Mary Van Dorn, your host of our show today, Surviving and Thriving After Sexual Traffic After Sex Trafficking. A few short months ago, we had the president and CEO of Operation Underground Railroad, Matt Osborne, on our show to talk about the incredible work that Operation Underground Railroad is doing both domestically and around the globe fighting sex trafficking and sexual exploitation. As a pivotal as this work is in fighting sex trafficking and exploitation, the real success in the, is in the aftercare. What happens after the rescue to help the survivors start their journey to living a healthy life? And that's where our guest today comes in. Jessica Mass is Vice President of Advancement with Operation Underground Railroad, and you'll hear us refer to it often as OUR for short. And Jessica actually deserves a very formal introduction. For over 20 years, Jessica has had the privilege to work in nonprofit assisting people in the U.S. and in more than 30 countries to empower those who have faced some of life's greatest challenges. These areas include human trafficking, orphans, domestic violence, and severe sexual abuse. She strongly believes in walking alongside others as we find hope, new perspective, and vision for the future. That just makes my heart swell unbelievably. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're quite welcome. Now, I know aftercare is like the number one reason why victims become survivors, right, and how they go on to lead healthy lives. So maybe you can help us give us a little bit of background, maybe how you got started in this sort of work, and then what aftercare actually means. Yeah, well, I grew up on a farm in the Midwest, and so I didn't think that I would ever end up working on an international level, but it was a dream that I had when I was 13 after I went on a church missions trip to Brooklyn, New York. So I went from the farm in the Midwest to Brooklyn, New York, and really seeing a lot of the different challenges that people have from poverty to mental illness to sexual exploitation and by seeing that at such a young age it really changed my life and what I wanted to do with my life and so from that point on I had intentionally volunteered with a lot of different organizations I wanted to be able to learn as much as I could and I ended up working in foster care, which is where I first found out about trafficking. There were some children that I was working with that I had no idea what trafficking was. And when I started to read their stories and find out what they had been through, it literally took me to my knees in tears. 
And from that point on, I just continued to see if there were other organizations or ways that I could help. And I, long story short, I ended up moving to Africa in 2014 and working with different organizations there, helping doctors and and other medical professionals be able to identify trafficking, sexual exploitation, mental illness with inside the hospital. And then in 2015, I moved uh, back to the United States, and that's when I started with OUR. That's an incredible journey. Even when you say, when you started to hear the stories and foster care of what the children were going through and it brought you to tears in your knees. I have to tell you, I thought at one time I was going to be a nurse, and I started to go through the LVN program. When it got to the point of going to the hospitals and the senior homes and working with them, I went home every day crying, every day, crying mm-hmm. for the people, crying for the families. And I said, I can't do this. I mean, I, 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 and so for you to be able to talk about that and how deeply it affected you, but you were able to get up and do stuff about it. And you had to be pretty young, even as, as you were starting all of this. It's not like, you know, sometimes as we go through life, we get, you know, a little bit more experience and we learn to handle things. This this has been a journey of yours for a while. Yeah. Yeah, I started working in nonprofit officially um, in 2002. I moved from the Midwest to Florida and worked with kids down there. and, And then I worked in the inner city in Chicago and I worked in Oregon. And so I, I've seen a lot of the worst things that could possibly happen to somebody. And mm-hmm. I think because of really feeling like that's what my life was meant to do, that's what I was called to when I was 13, I mm-hmm. feel like there's been a lot of different things that I've been given strength and and encouragement to be able to to continue on because I I agree with you. Mary, that when you see someone hurting and pain, and a lot of times you can't necessarily, quote, like, do something where you're like, okay, I'm going to do this one thing and it's going to make everything better and the problem's no longer going to be there. It's like sometimes it's just sitting with somebody in their pain while they're hurting and being fully present with them that really does have an impact. But you have to be willing to give up parts of yourself within that when you're going to be fully present with someone. Can you speak to the the absolute impact that the aftercare program has on these survivors? Yes. I love aftercare and I've had the the privilege of working in aftercare with OUR for the last eight years. And Sometimes people want to know what is aftercare, and it's like, okay, here's the three bullet points. And the thing that I've loved about aftercare with OUR is that it really was whatever someone needs, we will help meet you where you're at. And so the idea of having a person-centered plan, so if a survivor comes to us and says, here's what I need, and it is my dream to go to college, and I want to become a social worker, and I want to help kids that go through what I've been through, then that's some of the things that we've been able to help survivors with. 
there's other survivors that are at a point where they say, I just need mental health therapy. And so we provide mental health therapy. We actually have a, a, a therapist on staff, and he's been amazing at providing free therapy for survivors of trafficking. There's also um, community integration. And I think that's something that sometimes people forget within aftercare. Basically, you're, re, you're helping someone rebuild their whole ecosystem. Here's what my life was, and whether that's you were trafficked by your family or you're trafficked by um, somebody in the community, how do I now rebuild family, community, my mental health, uh, my educational goals, and and so when you have all the different pieces of rebuilding an ecosystem of somebody's life and helping them with leading that, that's a lot of what aftercare is. Now, aftercare also is what people might think of as far as there's aftercare homes. Um, in the United States, those look more like group homes. Internationally, they're called uh, aftercare homes. But that's when somebody would go and they live at an actual um, sort of center where they are receiving daily care and uh, the, the American term would be more called inpatient. So there's that aspect where it's like, okay, I'm living in an aftercare home. That's aftercare. But what sometimes people don't see is not every child goes to an aftercare home. Some kids go back to their family because their family is determined that it's a safe space for them to go back to. But your child or that woman, as they are rebuilding their lives, it might be something like, well, I'm going back to live with my family, but we don't have any way of, of making money. And so we have vocational training programs or business programs that we help people go through in order to um, start their own business and be entrepreneurs. So aftercare has a very large definition, and I'm always excited to share that with people because it's like taking our minds and expanding them with what does it look like if you're helping somebody rebuild their life. And um, even things like dental care, a lot of survivors that we've worked with haven't had um, the opportunity to be able to go to a dentist or they've had severe issues with their teeth. And so we've been able to support them in, in their dental care and, and in many other medical ways as well. So, uh, there, yeah, like I said, the reason why I love talking about what is aftercare is really to help people expand their vision of what aftercare is and think of ways of how they could get involved because aftercare is so expensive. I can imagine it's, it's, it has to be because it, it's long-term too, right? It's not something that can be just done in 30 days. Um, I imagine a lot of these vic- survivors, victims that have, have also haven't been going to school. So depending on how long they've been out, they could be years behind in their education. That's correct, yeah. Some of them, I mean, I, I've worked with teenagers that they're still at a first-grade level because they – they were never allowed to to go to school and and that wasn't a part of their life and so helping them catch up in school whether that's getting their GED or 
if they want to go on and do a trade or a different vocation or something like that, then helping them with whatever their dream is. Because the statistics that I've heard many times, and I see it as motivating, but the statistic is is that 80% of survivors that if they don't have a livable income after their intervention will be or be re-trafficked. And so for me, I say, okay, there's 80% if they don't have a livable income. How can Mm -hmm. we make sure that survivors are, that they're empowered to be in a position where they do have a livable income and, and prioritizing that and their dreams of what they would want to do for a career? That's incredible. I have a question for you regarding the aftercare. For me, it's really easy to imagine and follow along with all you're saying here domestically in the United States, but you have aftercare systems set up globally, right? And how does it change, let's say, from the United States to Thailand to Dominican Republic? How do you adapt to those eight different areas? Yeah, I've worked in over 30 countries, and you're right. There, trafficking looks a little bit different in every country, sometimes in different cities and communities even within the same country. And one of the things that we've always done is when we're going to a new country or a new city is we go and we basically we sit at the feet of the experts of that country and we listen. And we don't come in with the attitude that we know better than somebody else does about their own country and their own community. But our, our philosophy has really been how can we help improve the quality of care of what somebody is already doing. And we only do that with permission and with a true partnership. So for example, there's several countries in Africa that I've worked in and it would be so arrogant of me to go in and say, I know more about your specific community in, in Africa than, let's say, in Kenya. I know more mm-hmm. about your specific area of trafficking in Kenya than you do, but you grew up here and you're the expert. And so really it's a partnership, and I think that, that in general we can do more together when we're working in unity and no one cares who's getting the credit or or anything like that. I've never been on an operation where somebody says to me, now what was the name of the organization that's, that's doing this rescue or intervention right now? Because survivors don't, <laughs> no one cares about the name of the organization. It's can you guys all as, nonprofits and NGOs work together in order to provide the best quality of care and service. So that's basically what we do when we're going into another country is we say, how can we work together and partner with you and how can we support you? And that seems crucial when you have people that are, they're growing up in these areas. It's the culture that they know. So it's so smart to integrate the support from within their own communities and what they're used to and what they would expect and be comfortable with. But yet you're also bringing all of the knowledge that you've gathered from other entities around the world. It's just such an expansive way to learn and to help incorporate all of it. I'm going to take this a quick break here. Uh, we want to recognize one of our spot, a little commercial break to recognize one of our sponsors and partners. 
Women Leading Radio is brought to you today by Connected Women of Influence and our national partner, National University. National University is proud to be one of the largest profit, private nonprofit universities, which was founded in 1971. National University mission is to provide accessible, achievable higher education to adult learners. Today, National University educates students from across the U.S. and around the globe with over 170,000 alumni worldwide. Thank you for your support, National University, and to all of our sponsors and partners. Okay, back to our show. Um, the work that you're doing internationally, the work that you're doing here, what happens if somebody comes in and you have this person that you've rescued and they don't stay in the system, like if they want to go back home, I, I guess you can't keep them, but then, like you said, if they don't have a livable wage, there's an 80% chance they're going to go back to where, they, where you just rescued them, right? So what do you see as sort of the best motivator to try to get them to stay with the program? Because I, I imagine that there's some that just, they're so sort of brainwashed that this is all I can do, or maybe they're brainwashed by their traffickers or f afraid from them. How do you deal with that? That's kind of a tough question. Yeah. Every situation is a little different. Every survivor, is, you know, their experience is a little different. The, the way I guess you could say that we do it is I really believe that the way to help somebody that has been through any type of trauma or just in general is, is through love. And so, the the philosophy behind it is that you build genuine relationships with people. I think that anytime someone feels like they're a project or the nonprofit and so it's your job to to provide help, that doesn't that doesn't resonate with anyone. Even myself, mm -hmm. I don't want to be anybody's project. I want mm -hmm. people that are in my life to truly love me and care about me and help empower me in my dreams. But if I felt like they were doing it just because they had to, I I wouldn't receive that. And so when survivors go back to their homes, we try to make sure that they know that we care about them individually and that we want to continue to support them. And our philosophy has always been we will be in your life as long as you let us or as long as you want us to, but we will keep showing up. And we have caseworkers and, and case managers and, and people that truly do check in with people sometimes daily or weekly. But it's, it's um, not as much as trying to convince them. It's more of trying to let them know that they're actually cared about. And, and there's different ways that that you can show up for somebody. So, for example, there's, I can't even count the amount of birthday parties I've been to where we get to either attend their birthday party or we get to throw them a birthday party. A lot of the kids and even adults that we work with, they're like, we've never had a birthday party. And so we get to provide that and to celebrate them. And and I think when you're showing up for somebody in the in different types of ways like that, the things that are important to them, then you can also say, uh, you know, it, do you need a, 
Do you need a therapist? Do you need uh, equine therapy? Do you need any type of uh, food support? You know, all these other things that go along with helping somebody in aftercare. But but I my experience has been that when you show up for people and what's important to them, you basically you earn the right to be able to speak mm-hmm. into somebody's life and and to love. It's all coming back to it's just such a heart-centered organization in just the work that they do initially for the rescues and also the aftercare. It's just all centered from their heart. That's just that's where it comes from. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. We we do want survivors at least the. If if we come in contact with a survivor, we hope that he or she leaves knowing that someone cares and and that they matter. I there was a survivor we were working with not too long ago, and it was it was um, heartbreaking and 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 hopeful all at the same time. She she was struggling with suicidal thoughts and so she had been sharing that with her therapist and she had the correct wraparound services around her but she was sharing that with with us and she said I am wanting to end my life because I feel like no one cares my parents trafficked me I have nobody Mm -hmm. in my family that's shown up for me she's like you guys are the ones that have continued to check in on me continue to ask if there's things I need You've supported me in going to high school, all these different pieces. And and so the encouraging part is that she actually did feel like someone loved her. And the discouraging part is I wish she had got that from her from her family and she she didn't get that. And so just another way that I think sometimes people think, oh, you have to work for this nonprofit or you have to work for this big organization in order to have an impact in people's lives. And I'm always telling people, find out who needs love, which is all of us, and give more of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's huge. It's really huge. The work that we've kind of focused on so far has sort of been trafficking, but a lot of this also applies to people that have been sexually exploited, which mm-hmm happens so common right now, right? Can Do they get the same type of, I guess, when we as a member of our community, if we see identified this happening within our family or our circle, right, that somebody's being exploited, how, how do we help them? What do we do? Like, how do we get them the help? How, what do we do? I mean, <laughs> I know it sounds like a very ignorant question, but I seriously, like, if it's something happened to my niece, like, where do I begin to help? Besides being, oh, I definitely don't think it's, I, I don't think it's an ignorant question at all. It's a huge question, and it has so many different uh, aspects to it. Sexual exploitation is, I, I think sometimes people think that if you're going to be exploited or trafficked, then that means that it's like the movie Taken. You get thrown in a van, taken to another country, and locked in this in this room. And that's far from from true for for most people. That does happen, but that is not the majority of trafficking or sexual exploitation. So 
for example, you know your niece, like you said. I've worked with somebody who she was 14 years old or 15 years old, and she met somebody on, I believe it was Instagram, and I, this person had photos up as if he was a very attractive teenage boy that she was that she was attracted to, and so she was wanting to get his attention, and, and he was saying all these nice things to her. So throughout this grooming process, he got her to send photos first with without her shirt on and then without uh, her bra on and then without clothes on, and, and his whole intention was I'm going to groom her to get to this point of being able to get these videos and, and exploit her sexually. And so she had no idea. They'd never met in person. And, and she thought, oh, this is awesome. I have this, like, boyfriend that, that cares about me. And what ended up happening is he said, I'm going to take these videos and these pictures, and I'm going to first I'm gonna send them to your parents. And, of course, she got super scared, and then he said, I'm going to put them on social media, and then I'm going to send them to all your classmates if you don't continue to send me more. And there's different scenarios with that where I've seen both ways, where he's just been wanting more or another situation where the person was putting the images online and the videos online for child explicit material, which was formerly called child pornography. We don't use that term anymore, but uh, so child explicit material. And so teenagers, they can be in your own home where you think they're safe. It's almost like keep my kids in my home because they're safe, but knowing what's going on on their devices and things like that is so important. And the way to help them afterwards, I would say, is it's a relationship. It's making sure, first of all, that they feel like they can come and talk to you. If they feel like they're going to get in trouble and they can't come and talk to you, then then it's, there's not that open communication. So try your best to have open communication. From there, I would say get a very good therapist and um, helping the, the survivor of sexual exploitation, knowing that they were groomed and that somebody had intentions of doing this to them. And it wasn't that they just, that they just were not intelligent. I've heard girls say, I was so stupid, I can't believe I fell for this. And it's like, no, you were groomed. And so helping them walk through that process. And, um, and then continue to show up for the person that has been sexually exploited because it is a, it's a process. And that healing, uh, again, you know, that doesn't happen overnight. And um, sexual exploitation is, is awful. And I've seen lives truly, truly destroyed by it where they've had to then count on their friends and community and therapists to help them rebuild their lives. That, that is so triggering for so many, I'm sure, and just knowing, like you say, giving them a place to, to rest their, their heart or their sh- head on their shoulders or what have you, start, I start there, and then the therapy. I know I've seen videos or interviews of some of the survivors of sex trafficking, and they talk about, it. for some of them, it takes multiple different types of therapy. 
that mm-hmm. one type therapy doesn't always work, and sometimes it's a combination of them. So it's like just keep listening and keep keep trying, keep supporting, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been incredible, and I wish we had another another half hour to go, but we don't. So if listeners would like to reach you after our show, how would you like them to contact? What's their best resource? They can go to our website, OURrescue.org. That's OURrescue.org, and that's probably the best way to find out more information, get involved. I encourage people to go to their own local nonprofits as well that are doing aftercare, get involved. You can get involved in the foster care system and be either a therapeutic foster parent, a respite parent. You can also become a CASA, which is helping represent a child in court and really advocating for them. But I really encourage people, don't feel like you can't do anything. I was the 13-year-old little girl on the farm that didn't think I would have an impact. And so if I can hopefully have had an impact in the world, then I think anyone can. So I encourage people to get involved, find out more about the signs of trafficking, and if you need us, you can reach out to us on our website. Thank you, Jessica. Um, I really appreciate you coming on our show. You have been incredible, and you are so inspirational for all of us to reach out and just start our part. If a 13-year-old girl can start somewhere, so can we. Thank you for being on our show. Um, after our show today, you can listen to Women Lead Radio on all subscriptions, podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. It has been my sincere pleasure to be your host today with my guest, Jessica Mass from Operation Underground Railroad. Thanks for listening, and have yourself a great week. Women Leading the Way is produced by Connected Women of Influence the premier private membership organization where life-focused, business-to-business executive and professional women connect, collaborate, and cultivate a vast network of high-level affiliations, resources, and professional relationships. For more information about Connected Women of Influence, please visit our website at connectedwomenofinfluence.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.